Hi, I'm Dita. Hi, I'm Amy. And welcome to F This, a feminist podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about feminism and makeup. So, Amy, I have an interesting story. I was at a, um, a party wearing, like, you know, a black dress, lipstick, makeup, the works. Hot. Visually, um, uh, to a group of friends and feminism came up. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, as a feminist, I think. And this guy stopped me and said, wait, what? You're a feminist? I was like, yeah. He's like, but you're sexy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I didn't quite know how to react. Thankfully, I had a girlfriend right next to me who's as feminist as me. And she kind of jumped in and I was like, why do you think like feminists are not sexy? Yeah. And that got me thinking as to where this came from and what the deal is between, you know, looking attractive and wearing makeup and feminism. Yeah. That's, that's ridiculous. So I did a bit of research and was wondering why is feminism incongruous with being sexy? And apparently the, this starts, oh, well, uh, you can trace it back to the suffragette movement and the, there was a backlash to women wanting equal rights. And there was a, a set of posters that um, were released. And one of them shows a woman wearing a red dress standing on a platform, clearly advocating for equal rights. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's quite clear that she's quite, you know, assertive, ag- aggressive. She's talking loudly. You know, she's gesticulating. Um, but she looks quite not attractive conventionally. She's got buck teeth. And the slogan on the poster says, on the postcard says, you hear some pretty plain things at suffragette meetings and you see some pretty plain ones too. Oh, damn. So I think the idea was that a woman rebelling against the existing norms and wanting equal rights obviously didn't conform to existing standards of beauty or femininity. Obviously men didn't want her. Therefore, she wanted more rights so she wanted equal rights because yeah. why would a woman who was wanted by men and who was deemed attractive and beautiful why would she want any more than what she currently had right well and it's seeing like something like political participation like voting as um part of the men's world and so any woman who would want access to that it's like they're trying to be a man versus staying in their place as women. And so they're unattractive. Men don't want them. And so their alternative is to try to be like men and, you know, participate in politics, et cetera. It's also kind of falls back on that, um, you know, that assumption that any woman who demands rights is actually trying to be like a man because that those belong to men. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think what's really interesting about that too is kind of, I mean, there's a lot of dichotomies around, what is sexy, right? And these different interpretations of what sexy is. And so this assumption that you can't be a feminist and be sexy is also related to this kind of assumption that feminists are plain or this assumption that feminists, um, because, because they're very serious, that to be taken seriously, they must dress in plain clothes and not wear makeup mm-hmm. and, and not be interested in showing femininity because feminism somehow doesn't include femininity. This, this well, it, it almost means the opposite. It means you've rejected femininity exactly. almost in a way, right? So I suppose then when you see someone who conforms to traditional standards in a way, you would automatically assume, therefore, that they conform to stereotypes of women or traditional notions of 
of femininity and womanhood. Yeah, exactly. So I think this is where we kind of got to this interest in makeup. Um, and also this, um, the, you know, assuming that feminists can't be sexy and that wearing makeup is not feminist uh, is something that I think people who are suspicious of feminism will say things like that or think that way about feminism. But even within and amongst feminists, there is a lot of debate about like, is it okay to wear lipstick? Is it okay to wear sexy clothing? Is it okay to kind of embrace femininity and sexuality in a really visible way? Um, Or does that play into this kind of objectification of women's beauty, um, not just women's beauty, but a beauty in general of women's bodies um, and this kind of, you know, assumption that it can be bought and sold in the same way that this consumer driven market of makeup and everything is, is about, you know, consuming beauty and buying it. Yep. So there's a lot of stuff we can talk about in this yep. episode around standards of beauty and makeup and um, a whole heap of things, but we're sticking to talking about makeup. Yes, because this is the thing is that every episode, all the things are interconnected. So we could always talk <laughs> about all the things. We have to limit ourselves um, until the next podcast. So... I did a bit of research on makeup and turns out makeup is way older than what I thought it was. Wait, what? Um, you're, you're saying that CoverGirl didn't invent makeup? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, uh, like most things, it was the Egyptians. So apparently it's makeup has been used or body adornment has been used by human beings even before we started wearing clothes. It's nearly 75,000 years old. Oh, wow. And but the kind of makeup we use today, you know, highlighting your eyes and your lips, um, can be attributed to the Egyptians and is roughly about 7,000 years old. And the Egyptians first started using coal, which was to sort of highlight their eyes, uh, probably to protect apparently themselves from the sun. And they mm-hmm. believed it prevented illness. And get this, it was worn both by men and women, which is actually not so surprising to me because in India, certain um, groups of people male and female still wear coal or eyeliner mm-hmm. under your eye. Right. Um, and the Egyptians also were the first ones to use red as lipstick. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ancient China and Japan as well, um, till around 3000 BC, um, had women and men doing some sort of body adornment by staining their nails. Uh, and of course, adornment in India includes jewelry um, and includes the very well-known bindi, which is worn on your forehead. Till the, 16th, till the 18th century, sorry, makeup and adornment weren't limited to men, but in the Victorian times, that was where this perception of makeup see, being vulgar came in. The church backed this idea, and then it created sort of this correlation between um, femininity and a lack of trust, because only the devil would cover their face. Um, so... Then it went back to sort of very, very basic kind of non-makeup, a non-makeup, very pale look in Victorian okay. times. So like most things, we can blame the British. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, basically. <laughs> Excellent. That's useful. Is that your opinion as a post-colonial scholar? <laughs> uh, no, that is not my opinion as a post-colonial scholar. Um, it's a joke that I like to make. Um, and I think <laughs> we can probably put Americans in that mix as well. So um, yeah, no, I think... Um, I think that history is really important, particularly when we're kind of wanting to make a gendered feminist analysis of something, right, is, you know, basically we're looking at, at a 
something like makeup and saying, well, women are only, are always equated with their beauty and their bodies and it's, you know, their intelligence is downplayed, et cetera. And so anything that is highlighting those things is bad. It's part of the subjectification. And I think obviously feminists have more complicated conversations than that, but when we reduce the conversation to the present and particularly to only thinking about where we are, we're in the United States, we're in Australia, we're in a Western place um, and making those assertions, it really neglects all this history and all this history of, of how body adornment and makeup was part of, had practical aspects to it, was also part of kind of a, of, um, you know, how you put yourself together in your society, you know, it, it showed different things about who you were, including just kind of creative expression and that it wasn't, wrapped up in what we now know that it's wrapped up in, in this kind of in consumer markets or in um, particular perceptions about what is beautiful when it comes to women and women's faces and bodies. So yeah, again, I just think it's important when we, when we're critiquing something that we also like um, as, as feminists, that we're really careful to think about what are the histories and how are those histories from many different places in the world. And, uh, you know, with the lens we're looking through is often one that comes from the place we're in or has been affected by things like colonialism, where there, this dominant, these dominant ideas um, have become globally dominant through, you know, some of those kinds of um, historical processes. So, mm-hmm. I think that's a good so, I mean, so I'm feminist and I wear makeup. And while in the past I have kind of struggled with that a little bit, I'm mm-hmm. quite comfortable with that. But is there, a, is there a common take on makeup and feminism in general? Or is it just up to what women choose to do? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Is like a lot of issues in feminism, feminists don't agree necessarily. There's a lot of debate and there are definitely feminists who are really um, historically have been and in the present who are anti-makeup, who really think like that makeup is about, um, I mean, I think there's two kind of big critiques. One being that it is this like objectification kind of thing that it's about making women's bodies beautiful, not for the sake of them being beautiful and celebrating their own beauty, but for the sake of like a male gaze for men to look at. So that's Mm -hmm. one of the big critiques. And I think the other kind of contemporary critique is really around the um, cosmetics industry and how much money goes into it, as well as environmental concerns, animal rights concerns, um, but really that that women who wear makeup are sort of quote unquote buying in to this industry um, that is really about making money, and so it's commodifying, right? It's it's making beauty something that can be bought rather than something that we sort of explore and produce and imagine and all of that. Um, so I think, yeah, so- and so then the the kind of sorry, this is the, the kind of like middle ground, I think between thinking about how feminists have debate, debate makeup is really like that the important points are bodily autonomy that, that as a woman, you or any person who wears makeup, not necessarily just a woman, but that a person wearing makeup or showing their body in certain ways that they have a feeling that this is their body and belongs to them and that they get to control um, how they display it. So I think that's would be like really critical for feminists and then really as individuals, when we are deciding what we do, that we're critically analyzing our choices, even if we have to make them in an imperfect world. So that's really interesting what you say about choice, right? And especially as a brown woman, um, because our, 
our the ideas of beauty that we have to conform to especially have been so limited um i don't think it's really we should go around telling women especially brown women women in general what they should and shouldn't be doing with regards to how they want to you know self express whether that's through makeup or other ways but it's interesting when we talk about choice um is that when a woman chooses to wear makeup absolutely that is a choice and she should have the right to do so but in terms of critically examining that choice you can't actually divorce that from societal conventions that we have yeah so when you're choosing to wear makeup how much of that choice is actually informed by what society says is how uh, what society says about acceptable ways of presenting oneself i'll give you an example i had a customer interview the other day which is a video interview on zoom where i work in software so um they had to test a prototype i wasn't wearing any makeup but 5 minutes before the interview i went into the bathroom put some foundation some mascara and some lipstick on so i would be presentable to this customer so was that really a choice because i chose to come to work that day without makeup on i went and put some makeup on to be presentable to 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 conform to the idea of presentable also right. because i was in a position where i thought that i needed to present a face that matched some sort of a corporate look yeah and yeah how so is like get choice into that right right well and i think we've talked about this before too where it's also this kind of i mean it's not only that you're you know always in a situation when it comes to makeup or anything else where you might be trying to conform consciously or unconsciously to the standards of professionalism or the situation or your expectations of what the person you're talking with will think or be doing but it's also there's a lot of positive reinforcement right and so for example we've talked about like you know say you wear makeup like semi regularly and then you show up to work one day not wearing makeup and your coworkers all tell you how tired oh, you look I hate this yes yep and then what you tell me is that you just say <laughs> uh oh i'm just not wearing any makeup this is how i look when i don't wear makeup <laughs> which i think is such a great response cuz then the people are probably like uh uh, uh. like now what do like, i say <laughs> this is how women look when they don't put any makeup exactly. on and i think that's so important is that yeah. if you feel that you can't present yourself without makeup or if you feel like there's going to be questions asked of you or people are going to look at you like something's wrong or not quite right then of course you'd want to wear makeup all the time right yeah Yeah. Well, and I mean there is the other side to the coin too of, you know, it is all about what kind of makeup you wear as well, right? Because I think on the one hand we're we're talking about these kind of expectations in either a professional environment or certain maybe societal settings that you might be in where people think that makeup is part of being presentable. But you can cross over into wearing makeup that isn't presentable. So bright red lipstick. Yeah is more associated with you know like scandal vulgarity yeah with and vulgarity and prostitution fallen and fall yeah, yeah fallen women like it's becomes this kind of so so sometimes even though obviously you're still consuming that in the society etc but makeup can feel transgressive for women as well people talk about like you know wearing their lipstick this bright lipsticks and just feeling kind of more brazen like they feel more brave i definitely have yeah. friends that talk about that um but i also think then it it gets us into this this question of like the the makeup that is supposed to be acceptable and presentable is that which appears natural so it's yeah. like you you just said you tell your coworkers oh no this is what i look like without makeup but they actually think your baseline of like 
simple makeup is what a woman looks like. Yeah. And I think the best example of this in our recent entertainment world mm-hmm. <laughs> comes from um, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which, oh my God, anyone listening, if you haven't watched the show yet, it's so fabulous. It's I on Amazon. Yeah, it's yep. It is a fantastic show. And it's about this um, woman, this Jewish woman in Brooklyn in, I think it's like the 1950s, right? Mm-hmm. Who... It's sort of about her life and how she becomes a stand-up comic. I don't want to give too much away, but she's hilarious and the show's hilarious. But in one of the, I think the very first episode, they show her um, going to bed at night and getting up in the morning. And what she does is she and her husband are getting into their bed and they you know, have their covers all nicely on them. They're wearing their pajamas. They turn off the lights and then it's dark. And a couple of minutes later, you don't know. I don't know if they tell you how long she gets up. She goes into the bathroom. She puts her hair in. She washes her face with this cream. She puts her hair in curlers. She scrubs her face up. She puts a mask on her face. Mm -hmm. She goes back to bed. She opens her blind just a little bit so that the light will wake her up in the morning before the alarm goes off. She goes to sleep. And then the light wakes her up in the morning before her alarm goes off. She gets up, wipes off her mask, takes the curlers out of her hair, puts all of her makeup and everything back on, gets into bed, just in time for the alarm to go off and her husband to wake up and he (laughs) turns and sees her and just, he believes this is how she always looks apparently. Right. I mean, the point of this, I think this visual that they're giving you in the show is like that natural beauty quote unquote is like a woman who has put herself together in a particular way and shows only that to her husband and the world. And he can't, even her husband can't know what she looks like without makeup on. Yep. Which obviously this is the 1950s. It's a different time, but I think it kind of brings us into this interesting conversation we've had about like the natural makeup world and how it's actually meant to make you look the way that you look naturally, but that would be the way that you look without makeup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's actually knowing what we know about, you know, vulgarity and Victorian times and associating what makeup with the devil's work. It's actually quite insidious, right? Is that you're saying, wearing makeup and that kind of obvious self-expression where you paint your lips red is unacceptable. But if you paint them kind of a nudish, you know, pink or a brown and you make all the pores on your skin go away, it's like wearing makeup, but not wearing makeup. Yeah. And that's, that's quite interesting. It's like, well, what are you actually saying? You're saying that I'm not good enough the way I am, but if I use a little bit of product, to make my pores go away and make my skin look a bit more smooth and glistening, then that's a better thing. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Well, I something think- you said earlier, actually, about the transgressiveness of makeup mm-hmm. um, brought to my mind a video I was watching earlier by, um, this, uh, uh, by this person called, I forget her name, but the, the series or the show is called ContraPoints and it's a web series. It's a YouTube, bunch of YouTube videos. Um, and she's a transgender person, I think, in transgender woman in Baltimore. And he's talking about uh, the difference between gender dysphoria and being trans, etc. And the person shows up on the show wearing a beard with glitter in it. Now, you don't usually put those two things together. Yeah. Because glitter is worn by women, women and beards are worn by men. But that's another classic example of self-empowerment or, or ex- not empowerment, sorry, expression via makeup in a very transgressive 
way. You don't put glitter in beards. But by doing that, all of a sudden, you're upending this whole idea of what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man, and what is the space that exists in between right. that binary of woman and man. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great story and also kind of raises this issue of how wearing makeup is a different experience for different kinds of women. So, yeah. you know, you were talking about um, ex- experiences that some women of color might have in terms of the, the narrow idea of what beauty is for them and fitting into that and how makeup works within all of that. Um, we've also talked about, sorry, this is a side note for what mm-hmm. I was going to say, but we've also <laughs> talked about the colors of makeup. And when we went shopping together, yes. and all of my tones were things like ivory and yours were spice lattes yeah <laughs> so many food options for me amy so yes many food exactly options. just people are gonna want to eat your face um that's anyway. a whole different episode altogether. you're right that is but um but this idea that also so different kinds of women use makeup for different reasons and i think it's really important to talk about experiences of trans women which obviously neither of us is speaking from our own experience and so i don't i don't want to put words into people's mouths but i think in thinking about whether or not makeup is something that is conforming or transgressive that you have to think about, well, it depends on what you mean because trying to make yourself look a certain way because that's what a woman looks like, it's, it's a different experience for someone who was assigned a different gender at birth and who people are perceiving and often maybe calling them a different gender that makeup can be a tool for sort of claiming space within a definition of femininity and womanhood and, and showing the world who you really are, like quite literally. And I think trans women and feminists have a lot of complicated debates about makeup themselves. Um, and we will find some links and interesting things you can read about that and put that below on the podcast. Um, but I think that's something feminists really need to take seriously and not presume that every woman has the same space. You know, we were talking about choice earlier. We're not all making our choices in the same space. We're making them in really different spaces and with different expectations and perceptions of ourselves and internal perceptions and external perceptions. And I think that that really matters. Absolutely. And like when we talk about conforming to a standard of beauty and using makeup to do that, the products you have available um, to a large extent allow you to highlight or to um, to make yourself presentable in a certain way, right? So you have, for example, you have to have um, a sharp nose. So you have all these products and the way you sort of contour of your face so that your nose seems kind of pointed. Yeah. Um, you contour your face to minimize your forehead, uh, to make it seem smaller. You look at all these videos and they talk about how you can show, like make it appear like your hairline is closer to your forehead than it actually is cheekbones another classic example um it's something that i have always struggled with when i look at like blusher and i say well the idea is to highlight your high cheekbones like a lot of indian women don't have high cheekbones that's not how our faces are structured Mm -hmm. we don't have pointed roman noses so when you look at it that way then okay it is a question of yes choice and expression but when you choose all these products um, and if you want to use them the way they were designed effectively, you're then conforming to a very, very nan- narrow standard of beauty. Mm-hmm. And this is a debate that's raging in India right now. We have a bunch of these um, participants for the Miss India contest. For oh, this right. Year. I saw this photo, yeah. 
Yeah. And if you look at the photo, they look almost all exactly the same. They have the same hair. They have the same face structure. They have the same sort of color of their skin. There's no one who seems particularly dark. Mm-hmm. They're not white, obviously. They're, they're Indian. Um, but they all look almost exactly the same because they're all conforming to that same idea. Small face, you know, probably oval or, you know, heart-shaped, high yeah. cheekbones, straight noses, small foreheads. So yeah. is that really then self? Is that, is, is, that, is that the kind of standard of beauty that we want that is standardized across the world and based on right. a very, very narrow ideal? Yeah. Well, and I mean, related to that, you know, you have just talking about different types of cosmetics, you know, makeup as we understand it, you know, here in the U S or for, for you in Australia is, is different than when I'm in India and you're watching the news and every other advertisement is a skin lightening cream. Oh yeah. Right. And that's, I mean, it's not makeup, but it is a cosmetic beauty based product for women and men. They advertise them differently. There was a great one with John Abraham that was made by Garnier Fructis the last time I was there. And so it's, you know, it's European and American companies in a lot of these cases. And I think throwing that in because it, that is also, it, it seems like a glaring example, but it's really not that different from what you just described. It's a, it's something that is, there's this standard of beauty, which is very much associated with whiteness and sort of a global obsession with whiteness and a colonial history and, you know, colonial present in a lot of ways in many places in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. But this kind of idea that, that these standards of beauty are set in relationship between places too. So it's not just within a place. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, I did some research for an advisor of mine when I was an undergraduate in college where she was actually looking at skin whitening cream advertisements that were in weekly like magazine things in the mm-hmm. colonial period. So when oh, the British wow. okay. were in power in India. So these aren't new either, right? There were actually skin whitening devices and creams that were being used in you know the late 1800s. Yeah. So we have this interesting continuation and particular commodification of that, right? Where Garnier Fructis is going to sell that in India, but they're not going to offer it in the US because- yeah not just because there's a presumption that the U S is white, even though it's obviously not only white, but I think also because it's like within certain contexts that wouldn't be acceptable Mm -hmm. or it wouldn't be purchased. It wouldn't be a sort of, it's not a thing people are doing. Um, Well, the first time I even challenged that notion that being fairer is not obviously or not automatically the better thing Mm -hmm. is when I was 11 and in the U S and people were like, Oh, do you want to use a suntan lotion? And I automatically assumed a suntan lotion was a sunblock lotion because why would anyone use a suntan lotion? And yeah. we bought some, my mom and I, and we, and my mom didn't know any better because you know we're not used to this. And then when we, we kind of, I don't know how we found out what it was. I think we used it and I went darker like right away. And then realized, no, this is not a sunblock. This is suntan. People actually want their skin to get darker. It was so bizarre. We have like dark skinned people trying to make their skin go lighter and your light-skinned people making their skin go darker and it just blew yeah. my 11 year old mind so badly <laughs> yeah it's crazy yeah yeah um well and it is i mean that sort of i think the victoria era era you mentioned earlier is when this kind of pale it was class-based right that being fair-skinned and pale and and not wearing makeup that kind of a look was very much about you know wealthier women who could mm-hmm. stay out of the sun um mm-hmm and preserve that idyllic soft skin and beauty and whatever the ivory, all that kind of stuff that is very much um, 
all about whiteness and class in particular, yeah. but I digress because yeah. that's not specifically about makeup. So yeah. we well, also, that. I mean, if we, I mean, we won't talk about it in detail, but it is about accessibility and availability as well. Right. So the average Indian woman makeup is not cheap in India. You have a yeah. big variety, um, but to buy quality makeup is not particularly cheap. So it, right. it's pretty expensive for you to go out and buy your average Garnier product or yeah. um, is probably a bit more affordable, but still it's not something that everyone has access to. Yeah. Um, it also, you know what costs women a lot of money. So oh, yes, we spend- makeup across the board is a $71 billion industry. Um, but the Australian average, the average Australian woman apparently outspends all of her female friends across the world because she spends roughly $3,600 on beauty products every year. That's $300 a month, which is Wait, is, a that, lot is that money. Australian dollars? That is Australian dollars. That's right. So it's more okay. in USD. Um, apparently women living in the US and the UK spend a little bit less. Um, American women spend less than $3,000. That's AUD. So $2,800 annually. Um, and British women spend just about 2000 Indian women, on the other hand, spend between 255 to 1200 Australian dollars a year, which is again, quite a lot. But I'd imagine knowing what I know about India and women and cosmetics, that that would be, uh, that's probably just their survey sample. It's not the average Indian woman because it'd be quite limited. Yeah. Yeah. Who could afford that? You know, 12,000 rupees a year at the low end of that is, yep, you know, that's right. That's like, you know, quite a significant percentage of, of poorer people's incomes, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. So if you're surveying people who are buying makeup, just how much they spend. Yeah. yeah it costs a lot of money and it's, it's, it complicates. Yeah. It sort of complicates this, this idea of choice as well, because we are literally being sold these things, you know, like a, that sounds a little disingenuous, but we are, we're being, you know, bombarded with advertisements and offers. And, and so it isn't just that you walk down the street and you see that someone looks like nice wearing makeup and you want to wear makeup. It's that, you know, on social media, on movies and television, on um, news, et cetera, that the commercials and different in-place advertisements that you're seeing are actually Mm -hmm. offering you all of these things. And so your choice becomes one that is very much compelled by you know, the forces of advertising, but mm-hmm. also by your own budget, you know, you're going to, Oh, I can afford this or I can't afford that. And when you get a new job, you might think, Oh, just like you want to get nicer clothes, you might want nicer makeup. Yeah. Um, and so it, it becomes this, this space where for regardless of the reason you choose to wear makeup, you're not doing it outside of this kind of, you know, industry that is profiting off of the commodification of women's beauty or not, yeah. again, not just women, but of, of beauty. And when it comes to choice, also, it's not just about personal choice, but it's also you responding to what society accepts of you, right? Mm-hmm. Or expects from you. Um, a study by Harvard University in 2011 by Nancy Edkoff showed that um, they basically did a study where they showed a whole heap of people photographs of women wearing makeup and women not wearing makeup and then asked them to rate them on likability and competence. Mm. And the study showed that women wearing makeup were seen to be more likable and more competent. Yeah. So is that really then choice when you know that you're treated better when you're wearing makeup? And I do this. If I have to go back and return uh, a product 
or exchange a product because it's defective or I've changed my mind or something's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I will sit in the car, spend five minutes before I walk into that store, put on some lipstick and some mascara because I think that I will get a better outcome at the counter than if I walked in there with no makeup on. Yeah. Yeah. Now I didn't actually know why I did that. That was just my anecdotal or my experience over time that made me feel that I'm treated, I get a better reception when I'm wearing makeup. Mm -hmm. But now I have a study I can quote by Harvard University, no less, that that is actually the case. Well, I mean, I think it's related to the thing that we talked about earlier when a coworker thinks you look tired because you're not wearing makeup, that there is this kind of perception that if you don't, you know, if you do look tired or not fully put together, quote unquote, that that is really like a a reflection on your character. So on your ability to do well and put your best foot forward and all of those things to, so then can you really be a good professional? And so in the case of returning something, are, are people judging whether or not they think you're lying or whether or not they think you're trying to mislead them? Um, I think that also relates to experiences I've had teaching. So when I was in graduate school and I was, you know, in the process of getting my PhD and you reach a certain point where you're able to teach your own classes, at least at my university in Seattle in the U.S. And so I was teaching my own classes for the first time. And on the one hand, I wanted to make it clear to my students that, you know, I was a professional, that I was in charge of the space. And so I was wearing nicer clothes and all of that. I wasn't going to go in the jeans and hoodie sweatshirts that I wore most of the time in grad school. So that was one part of the professionalism. But the other aspect was makeup, was that I, I thought, oh, if I put on mascara, I look more awake. I don't, I don't want people to think that my eyes look tired because then I'm not like alert and on top of things. And, and so putting makeup on as this way of like in this, it, it's about, it's similar, similar kind of presentability, but in this sense, my students did not care if I wore makeup. That was like not an interest of theirs. It's not even a, a measure of their respectability. It's more like me assuming that subconsciously my um, authority in that space and them deeming me a legitimate professional person qualified to teach them what I'm teaching them is based on those subtle things that even if they don't consciously think about it, that makeup is one of them. And then there's, of course, you know, you do it because you like it. So there's times when you want to get dressed up and you feel good about yourself and you put some makeup on and you go, okay, well, that makes you feel good. So So while it's absolutely essential to look at it critically, look at choice and look at societal expectations and how that informs people and the choices they make, it's also important to honor autonomy and say, well, if that's the choice that you're making for whatever reason, that's a choice that we respect. And fundamentally, I think the feminist take on makeup is exactly that, is that we need to critically analyze choices and why we behave certain ways in certain ways, why we have certain norms and certain attitudes, Mm -hmm. but we also have to give people the freedom to express themselves whichever way they feel comfortable and wearing makeup or not wearing makeup is one of those things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of the small things for an individual, like you were mentioning before, if a coworker says, Oh, you look so tired that you don't just say, Oh oh, yeah, I am. You actually say, Oh no, I'm not any more tired than yesterday. I'm just not wearing makeup today. Yep. That, that there's those little small kind of pushbacks um, that, that shape expectations as well, I think. Because um, I think it's kind of a matter of, I don't think that 
I think we, we need to respect individual choices, but we also need to remember that the kind of this, the structures of a society that we all live within shape, shape those choices. And so we, you don't point the finger at an individual person and say, you can't be a feminist if you're wearing makeup, yep. but you can point the finger at, um, you know, a pattern in a workplace where the women who dress a certain way and wear makeup get promoted and the ones who don't, don't. I'm not saying that's a real thing, but I'm saying, you know, in a particular, you can challenge institutions and, and how beauty is perceived or sorry, not perceived as represented in media and all of that. And so I think that's a better place to put our feminist energy. If we feel like, you know, women's are being, bodies are being objectified or beauty is being commodified or turned into this thing that harms women and is used to judge them, then you go to the seats of power. You say, okay, what institutions have control over these? Mm-hmm things. And that's where you challenge it. You don't blame an individual yeah. woman for making a choice for herself. You say, okay, where are the problems? Let's, let's root those out. Um, and I think that's something that is really, for me at least, like the more that I have learned about feminism in my life and all of the varieties and debates. Cause I mean, people listening to this might be like, uh, Amy, Deepa, you're supposed to tell us whether or not wearing makeup was feminist and you did it. <laughs> But that's the thing is that feminists don't all agree and there's debates and valid reasons for having different positions when it comes to things like this. And I think what matters though is that we really look at these critical things in terms of things like autonomy and what are the systematic problems and what does it mean to change an institutional problem versus, you know, holding individuals responsible for the whole effect of institutional expectations. So bottom line, if you want to wear makeup, go for it. But understand why you're doing it and be a bit aware about what might be influencing your choices to wear makeup or not wear makeup. Well, and everybody has different things about that. So I I don't wear makeup on a daily basis. But when I do, I have started, um, when I became vegan, I started looking more at like, okay, what are the cruelty-free, non-animal product-based cosmetics because those are the ones that I want to use. And I'm not going to judge women who don't use those. That's not my point and that's not my goal. But the point being that, you know, everyone has different priorities when they're making those choices as well. Um, And if there's a a company who has advertisements that you particularly don't like because you think they are body shaming or racist or you don't like that all their colors are freaking named after spices and coffees and things, then you can choose a different product that doesn't do that. And so I think as much as I want to critique the consumer basis of this and the very capitalist, you have a gazillion choices, it, it is also something that individuals can prioritize how they do make that choice when they're making it. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes it's based on time. So on that note, since mm-hmm. I have a lot of time today, I'm going to go try that new shade of golden brown eyeshadow I bought. Ooh, I want to see that. You might have to. You might have to include a picture on our website, Deepa. <laughs> All of the name of uh, the podcast. And our next well. podcast will be tips for contouring. I'm just joking. Oh, we're no, never going to do that, right? <laughs> Mostly because I don't even really know what that is or how to do it. Yeah, neither do I. So thank you for listening, and see you next time. Bye, Deepa. Bye, Amy.